Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Tim Gordon. He studied philosophy in the Pontifical Graduate Universities in Europe. He taught at Southern California Community Colleges. He holds degrees in literature, history, philosophy, and law. Currently resides in Mississippi, having escaped from California. And probably his most important job and role is he is a husband and father of six children. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks a million for having me. So how can people, before we get into uh, the case for the patriarchy, which I think is really important, especially in today's uh, world, what are, how can people follow what you're doing? I know you have a great podcast, Rules for Retrogrades. How can people kind of really get kind of some cutting edge and, and really timely information on what's going on in and outside the church? Well, yeah, follow my podcast, Rules for Retrogrades, on YouTube and or whatever, a YouTube show. Uh, you can just look me up on YouTube at Timothy Gordon. Also, check out timothyjgordon.com, where you can enroll for classes at my Retrograde Classical Academy. I've got uh, adult ed that's ongoing, the seven courses. Some of them are mixed with uh, homeschoolers' aid courses. So the classes go from algebra for, for homeschooling high school people to intro to Latin, church history, U.S. history, scripture, Catholic social teaching, uh, we, you know, church, uh, Aristotle's ethics. So we have something for everyone. Go to timothyjgordon.com and click enroll. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm glad that those options are out there for people and it's easy to do, right? Just go to your website and then just follow what, what you need them to do, right? Uh, yes, precisely. Yeah, that's, you can find it all there on timothyjgordon.com. So you wrote a, a book that just came out. It's called The Case for the Patriarchy. Um, why is the patriarchy so important to Christianity and therefore the family? And how have we fallen so far, so far short? And we'll kind of talk about that and break it into pieces. But why is the patriarchy so important? So the patriarchy is so important because the patriarchy is constitutive of Christianity. It is Christianity in a very real sense. So, you know, when feminists say they want to do away with the patriarchy, down with it, or Marxists say this of any stripe, they're talking about Christianity. And the funny part is Christians and Catholics and conservatives being the great losers we are, that's the one task we tend to a lot is we always lose culturally. We don't know it, that when they say, hey, down with the patriarchy, they're talking about Christianity, but they do. And the feminists since the middle 1800s always have. So what we have in Christianity is a bifurcated patriarchy, two levels. The higher level, the clerical patriarchy of an all-male presbyterate and episcopate, and Jesus selected all male priests and bishops. And on the other lower end, we have a lay patriarchy made up of household patriarchs, uh, priests, prophets, kings, all rolled into one as they're rolled into one in the person of Jesus Christ. And those people are all married householders who are Christian. doesn't matter whether you're Catholic, Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, 
you are the priest of the Ecclesiola, the church in miniature or the home. And you're also the prophet and the king of your home. And the main problem with today that Christians face, as bad as the clerical patriarchy is and as fall as it's fallen, the main problem is with Christian male householders who have had their leadership, what's called their headship in the Bible, commandeered by a uh, mustered army, a uh, weaponized army of wives who think they're Christians and think they can be Christian feminists at the same time. And that just isn't a thing. Well, and I, you know, this is why I thought the book was so good. You kind of go into all these details. You go into a lot of history. So this isn't like a new phenomenon that just kind of cropped up. It's been something going on even since, you know, the garden, right, where Eve kind of took a a leadership role talking to the devil, which Adam should have never allowed happen. But you talk about, you know, Christian feminism, talk about an oxymoron. It's almost like saying a democratic socialist, right? You can't be a Christian and a feminist, can you? Precisely. A, A Christian feminist is a circular square. It's not a thing. It's a contradiction in terms. And What's ironic is the first wave feminists who, again, losing Christians and conservatives, always insist were innocuous and were well-behaved. They were the most honest of all the three or some people say four waves of feminism. They were the most honest about this, that the, the Christian religion, the patriarchy that is the Christian religion, um, pitches something called complementarity, male-female complementarity. And and you probably know this term, and most of your audience does, but all of the first-wave feminists in the middle 1800s, starting really in the year 1848, which I hope we have time to talk about in a little bit, they all knew, they were mostly liberal Protestant women, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who knew that complementarity this direct teaching of Jesus and St. Paul, the idea that men and women are totally different, totally different types of human beings, is the enemy of this new thing, feminism. But I do want to take a a moment to remark on what you said about the original sin, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Feminism ain't that new. In its organized form, first wave feminism in the middle 1800s, and then second wave feminism in 1970, and then third wave feminism in the 1990s. That's relatively new. But feminism, more than all of the other subversive leftist ideologies that have poisoned society, Marxism, socialism, transgenderism, homosexualism, feminism is beneath all of them as a constitutive part of the original sin of Adam and Eve. There's always two parts to it. There's an omission, an act of omission by the male, him not doing something he needs to do. And then there's an act of a commission, a female commandeering that task which the male isn't doing. And you see it in the garden. Adam was standing idly by when Eve took his job, dialoguing with outsiders to the household and, of course, making a wrong decision. If you read all of the first commentators on Scripture, uh, Jerome, Augustine, Ambrose, St. John Chrysostom, they all say the same thing. 
and that, that thing that they comment is none of this would have happened. The fall of mankind, you know, sin, suffering, sickness, death, original sin. If Adam would have been the one to do dialogue with the serpent, he forsook his headship. And because he did so, the woman who was not meant to be doing that job was more easily tricked. And that's why Satan, the serpent, knew to target her. Right. And, it, you know, I think it, it, it reminds us that, you know, yes, you know, the patriarchy has been under attack, but it doesn't it doesn't fall the way it does unless men abdicate what their true responsibilities are. And that's, I think, probably the most frustrating part. It's not like, you know, invasion of the body snatchers. They had no control over what was going on. We've abdicated our role as husbands and fathers, as you mentioned, priest, prophet, and king, that, we're, that we are, when we're baptized, we're giving those, given those roles. We've basically allowed it to happen. And now we're, we're like lost puppy dogs. And, you know, at some point you got to take the brass ring and start fighting your way back. Precisely. And I do agree with your assessment, but I, I want to issue one caution. I, I agree with everything you said. Men did forsake the patriarchy starting with Adam in the gardens. We were all square there. But I do want to say this, that the cardinal rule of feminism, you'll note it, you might not note it until I say it, but after that, you'll see it everywhere about you. It's never, ever for any reason, say a negative thing about any woman. You'll note they've kind of soft wired even us Christian men to do this, never, ever say a negative thing about a woman. And I want to be very careful to denote that that rule needs to be broken, right? So it's fine to say, well, Eve wouldn't have done what she did in the garden. And she did sin first. Uh, Augustine, Ambrose, Jerome, St. John Chrysostom are very explicit on that point. Adam really sinned ongoingly through omission you know, during and I guess after Eve's sin, but Eve sinned first. Her her first sin was undone by Mary. So it's theologically very important, even Mariologically. Uh, so I don't want to commit that same <laughs> blunder that, that hapless, uh, cuckolded Christian males always commit by saying, oh, always blame a male. No, I mean, the original sin was by Eve, and theologically that, that matters very much. But it's true. She wouldn't have been in the position to make such a blunder if Adam hadn't omitted to act and, and acted like a real man and, you know, said, hey, you stop talking. I'll, I'll deal with this serpent here. You know, my act is expressive. Yours is receptive. I am the male, I'm to be active, you are the female, you're to be passive, I will speak, you be silent in this situation. So yeah, that matters. Well, and I think, you know, you were talking about you want to get back to, uh, you know, 1848, right? I think that was, was that the year of the Communist Manifesto, I, if I remember right. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, the attacks on the patriarchy, right? Black Lives Matter, that, you know, which is a Marxist organization, that was one of their goals, right? We know that the, the chant that was done by feminists such as Kate Millett was, you know, destroy the patriarchy. So it really has been in the crosshairs, but it really is such an insidious uh, attempt to destroy family, to destroy Christianity, as you mentioned. But that's kind of, that's Marxism, right? You got to do that in order to become the God and not 
the real God. Certainly. And yeah, a couple great points in there. 1848 is coincidentally, or perhaps not coincidentally, the year of the publication of the Communist Manifesto. It's also the year, the birth year of first wave feminism. There's something called the Seneca Falls Convention in upstate New York, where a bunch of feminist dames got together at a convention, memorialized the convention in a document called the Declaration of Sentiments. They bemoaned all of the things that you and others who haven't read the book, well, I guess you have read the book, more commonly associate with what they think is second wave feminism, right? We need women in the clergy. We need women to rebel broadly against men. We need women out of the homes. We need women away from their children. We need women to act uh, sexually promiscuously in order to somehow equal the supposed wrongs of men. And we need generally a, a kind of declaration of independence from men. Now, most conservatives and I guess Christians have consoled themselves with the petty notion that that is, you know, the evil work of so-called radical feminism, but good first wave feminism never would have done it. Well, go check out the document. It's called the Declaration of Grievances. It's a small little book. You can read it. It, it is first wave feminism, meaning there is no good first wave of the thing. It's always from the devil. It's always constitutive of the original sin. So that's really important. Now, Another idea hidden in what you said matters very much. The main idea of feminism is the destruction of the family, which Satan and Marx and Saul Alinsky, but you know, Satan and Marx and Saul Alinsky were all sort of compatriots, and both Marx and Alinsky noted it that they were doing the work of Satan. They made it very explicit you have to decouple women from children. And there's an interesting dialogue. I don't include it in the book, but I learned it from Michael Knowles' new book between um, Betty Friedan and Simone de Beauvoir, the French feminist. And Simone de Beauvoir, Mm -hmm. this is somewhere between first and second wave feminism. She was telling Betty Friedan, look, um, American feminism is going to fail because you Americans have such a fear of the use of force, particularly legislative force. In France, what we want to do is just, and what we are doing, is to make it illegal for women to stay in the home, right? Because women, it's in their nature to want to raise kids, as everyone with half a brain knows. Uh, This is what women, all women want to do, even left-leaning women who have been badly propagandized their their whole life, which is most women in society, actually. Even they, when given the chance, um, they want to stay home and raise their kids. And that's why you have such a ridiculous sham as maternity leave at work, where employers are essentially being bankrupted because they have to pay left-leaning, quote-unquote, career women who want to go on and be part-time moms to be away from the work for a year and a half. Well, Betty Friedan is like, well, I'm not sure about that, but I think we'll just use shame in America. We'll use shame. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Simone de Beauvoir kept insisting, no, no, you got to use force because female nature is strong and you have to overcome female nature with force. You know, you talk about, you know, what a true married vocation, you know, and what, you know, kind of the virtues of women who who are married. 
you know, loyal, docile, uh, supportive, faithful, lovely, encouraging, you know, kind of believe in their husbands. I mean, not only is that true, but boy, if you said that today, you would be a hater, right? I mean, talk about the cancel culture coming down on you. Uh, but that's why that's what speaking the truth has to be done. And if we're not if we're not courageous enough and the church hasn't done a great job of this to really say these things because um, they're afraid of getting hammered. But, you know, you can't run from the truth. And when you do, you end up with the garbage we got now. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's there's a fine distinction to be made. That's a little bit hard to make. And I, I want to try to thread the needle between. Uh, this this statement you just made, which is the um, intonation of PC culture, which you said, oh, if you say the Christian teaching on women nowadays or on wives in particular, you will be called a hater. A lot of people, which is true, absolutely true. The distinction I want to make is that when people typically say it, they'll kind of chuckle. Oh, man, say that today. They're going to call you a hater. Yeah, I get it. Of course. I mean, I'm the one that wrote the book and people are kind of beginning to call me a hater. But the point is this. It's a psyop. It's a psychological operation. It's agitprop, man. Like they don't, the, the people on the other side, the diabolical psychology and, and, and its agents, they understand it's not hateful at all. Now, there are dummies in the middle, and I'm, I'm sad to say the dummies in the middle are like the 80% who yeah. really start to believe the psychological operation, right? They always, they believe every psyop that's out there in society. And they're like, Oh, oh boy, you're, you're going to be called a hater. It's like, well, no, the other side doesn't believe that they know that they are the haters. The other side knows they hate the family. They want to destroy the family. They hate women. They hate men. They hate children. They hate human beings. They hate the seed of Adam and Eve because they operate on behalf of the, you know, the devil. So, so yes, they will call a hater because this is the main way that gaslighting works. Gaslighting is the beating heart of all psychological operations. We could talk about some other major psychological operations from, uh, you know, 2020, if we had time, there are a couple, there've been a lot out and about these days, but we don't have the time. Psychological operations always involve accusing others of the very thing that you're doing right now. So no one except the kind of morons in the middle fall for this haters business. But yes, people do call you a hater. And a lot of them are sort of the instrumental tool of the other side of this thing, which is to say that, you know, the brain behind the feminist, which is really just Satan himself. Yeah. And I mean, you're, and you're right, right. The middle is a large group that are like lemming and they just, and they fall for this stuff, which we see it. I mean, look, if we just look at the political system right now, right, our current president and his whole staff, you know, everything they accused Trump of what he was going to do, he didn't do, and they're doing it. And it's amazing, right? How this juxtaposition really works on people and they, and they buy it. And then people are doing the same shenanigans. They're trying to blame other people and then they get away with it. Yeah. Well, they get away with it because they know how to run this, the psychological operation. Yeah. Just as the feminists. Yeah. I mean, like, like, this is, this is, the game is afoot, as Sherlock Holmes would always say. And it, you, you always bet on the house. And the house is, 
Satan kind of has the realm. He's taken over. Yeah, I mean, look at it this way. Feminism had to baste. It had to cook for about 100 years. Because first wave feminism, the reason all these foolish, haphazard conservatives and Christians call first wave feminism innocuous is just because it was subterranean until a little bit before the second wave. So say 1848 to about 1950, say about 100 years. First wave feminism was cooking up the conditions for the possibility of a coming out party, which was, you know, second wave feminism, which started in 1970, started a little before that. But so let's just say feminism took about 100 years to cook. Well, the other iterations of feminism, you know, feminism is just proto homosexualism, proto transgenderism. Um, they took much less time to cook once feminism got into the culture, right? I mean, if feminism is the idea that a man and a woman can, by agreement, consent to act like each other, well, then homosexualism, they could just do it in the form of the bedroom, right? You can substitute a man in there for a woman or, or vice versa. And transgenderism, you're just making a slight ontological stretch saying, well, if a man can act like a woman, he can be a woman when he throws on a dress. So feminism is just the um, you know, protonic, uh, beta version of these. And it took a hundred years to base. Now look at homosexualism. It, it took about 10 years to base from the middle nineties to about 2006, when you get prop eight in California and all the stuff that followed on that. So 10 years to base for homosexualism and then transgenderism took about one. It took up all of one. It came out of nowhere, ostensibly. Creation ex nihilo of this ridiculous transgender, you know, just a post-feminist ideology. Well, it was about 2015 to 2016, all of a sudden, every transvestite in the world, which was the old name for a man in a dress, just started getting called a, a, a transgender. You know, it's not a man in a dress. That's actually a woman. So what you have is a logarithmic growth curve. Uh, once feminism got in the water, which was 10 to the power of two, 100 years, it got in. And then literally homosexualism only took 10 to the power of one to cook. And then after that, then uh, transgenderism only took 10 to the power of zero, a single single year to, to base. And now the world as we know it is just over. Christendom as we know it. Not the church, but Christendom is over. So we're, we're, we're kind of watching with interest what, what will come next. It's sure to be horrible. Yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, you have, you have six young children, you know, to, to think of what they will have to endure. But, you know, we're here for, for a reason, right? The Lord has put us here to be faithful and to share the truth. And, you know, when you, when you view it in terms of this is all about our salvation, um, if we're not really being the church militant, like we're called to be, to defend the truth, to share the truth, to help bring people to Christ, then, you know, all these other things just give us opportunities to do that. If we shy away from it, especially as men, then we're really, you know, we're just giving up the goats. In that. Yeah, that's right. I, I think the solution is um, it's always sacrifice. And, the way that we raise our six kids, Seth and me, I got five little girls, one little boy. You raise them partly differently, part the same based on sex. But 
Right. Really, it's this. Uh, we, 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 we parent, I think, more closely to the parents of St. Therese of Lisieux's parents, the little flower. And it, that, that's not by design. I just noted that, you know, ex post. It's like, look, get done what we have to get done. I, my older kids do know, I, I, think, I think we're pretty close to the end. You know, deus volt, God will, that we're close to the end because I don't know how much worse it could get. But it's all about heaven. And we got to do some, some unpleasant things in our day, or not even unpleasant, but just some things that are uh, ob- obligatory. And we're going to do those, and we're going to do them well. But pretty much the rest of the time, we deal with w- the sense of obligation by just having fun where we can. I mean, we don't really have a lot of mids in our mix. We have some high and we have some low, but we spend a lot of family time doing as much fun stuff as we can, you know, play together, pray together. And just, you know, see what may. I don't, other people ask about kids like, oh, isn't it some tragedy? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the world will end before I see old age. Maybe the world will end before they see old age. It wouldn't be a bad thing as long as we're in a state of sanctifying grace and we all love each other, uh, you know, within my family and come what may bring it on. Tell, tell, tell the Marxists and the feminists and the globalists we're running this giant psyop here in 2021. Uh, do your worst. We'll do ours. Well, and in the end, they're the unhappy people, right? They're, they're spewing a lie that they want everybody to buy, and they're not finding any joy or happiness. It's, it's really in what you were just talking about, living the family life, you know, husband being the husband, the wife being the wife, being a model for the kids. That's why you know, I appreciate you putting this book together. There's been a bunch of books on feminism. Um, but I think this on the patriarchy and really going through the history was really important. We're down to less than uh, a minute to go. Uh, can you remind me? I know this is put out by Sophia Press. Where can they get the book? And then how can they follow you again? SophiaInstitute.com is if you wanted to buy from the Catholic bookseller direct or Amazon.com, either or. And uh, I'm on TimothyJGordon.com. Take my, my classes uh, homeschool your kids, pull them out of public school, pull them out of the Catholic schools. Homeschool them. A lot of people are on the fence about that. And we offer aid to homeschoolers. So you can take a Zoom class with me. I offer seven. Go to timothyjgordon.com. Also, my podcast is called Rules for Retrogrades on YouTube. Well, Tim, I really appreciate your books and, and all the things that you're doing to try to bring the truth out. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.